listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome everyone to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I am Carlos Noche and I'm joined by my amazing podcast partner, Lisa Schneer. How you doing, Lisa? Can't complain, Carlos. It's a good day. It's always good to be a good day. All right, folks. Hey, before we jump into the topic of the day, small little format change. In an effort to be a little bit more authentic and raw, we're gonna, you know, change it up a little bit. One thing is I'm hey, I'm sitting down versus standing up and fidgeting like I normally do. And I love your feedback. If you loved it, I hated it, ping me back over LinkedIn or whatever format you choose. Also, you can always ping back Lisa and tell that Carlos guy was horrible. We welcome your feedback. And with that, let's turn into our topic of the day. If you've tuned in recently, we've talked a lot about the role of the CRO in revenue operations. And today, we have a real expert on empowering profitable growth through both these functions. And I'm excited to hear his perspective on sales and sales planning. And with that intro, we have Dana Therian. Am I saying that right? You can drop the H. It's Therian. Tarian. Okay, there we go. Um, and this gentleman is a veteran. Thank you for your service, sir. And a globally recognized sales and re- revenue operations leader with a history of driving double-digit growth and profitability. And currently, the VP of Sales Performance Management, or SPM, and Revenue Ops at Anaplan. Dana, thank you so much for joining us today. We're, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Lisa. Thank you for having me, Carlos, as well. I really appreciate it. And thanks for the opportunity to speak to your audience. All right, Dana, every podcast, we start off with the same question in an effort to get our audience to know you a little bit better as an individual. What is something, Dana, that you are passionate about that those that might only know you through work might be surprised to know about you? So I've had a running streak that's been going on for almost two years. I was a military officer when I was a younger guy, and I used to run quite a bit and gave it up and you know went through middle age like a lot of guys do and then decided to get back in shape. And I think four years, five years ago, I picked up running again, and then I just got addicted, mostly because of all the technology and how far it's come and how it helps you really realize how you can improve from day to day and see all those stats in real time. So on October 10th, 2021, I said, I'm going to see if I can run for a year straight every single day. And I did it for a year, and I said, well, that wasn't that bad. Maybe I could do it for two years. So it's been an average of six plus miles a day countless numbers of races, countless numbers of personal best. And I just ran a marathon two days ago and I've got five more days, I think, to go until I hit two years. And the hardest part about it is deciding when to quit because I don't know if I'm going to be able to quit after two years or not, but we'll see. Well, how are you doing with, because running is one of those things that you often end up with injuries. Like, how are your knees? How like <laughs> how are things going there? <laughs> Well, I had every injury you could imagine when I first started. And I think probably because I was comparing my 53-year-old self to my 27-year-old self and trying to do what I had done. But I learned how to train smarter and more responsibly. And I used the technology, as I mentioned. There's a system called Stride, S-T-R-Y-D, for anyone that wants to look it up. It's a little foot pod that goes on your shoe and it measures your critical power, your output instead of like heart rate or speed. So it encourages you to run 80% of your runs in your low heart rate zone. And that's how you can improve your endurance 
and really improve your speed over time. It's kind of counterintuitive. You got to run slow to run fast. And it helped me to do it a lot more responsibly. And once I started doing that, I was almost injury free. Wow. That's super cool. Definitely going to look that up. I've always struggled with running. Like, I don't know. I find it kind of boring. I like cycling. I'm a cycler because I have like a need for speed. Halfway through it, I decided that I was going to do it every day outdoors as well. And, you know, I put the treadmill up. It's been almost that entire two years has been outdoors. And I live in Maine. My wife, she supports me quite a bit. We would, on the days of a blizzard, we'd go to the high school and run behind the snowplow. I don't know, there's something mentally satisfying about making a commitment to yourself and then just making yourself do it no matter what. So I, I do it more for, for self-confidence and, you know, feeling good. Amazing. So then let's talk a little bit about your professional life because uh, you've got a ton of experience, obviously, starting with the military. But how did you end up where you are today at Anaplan? You mentioned I, I started my career as a military officer. I grew up in Maine, went to a business school in Maine, and I got a scholarship from the U.S. Army. So I was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the U.S. Army in 1990, and I was cross-enrolled to the University of Maine up in Orono. And who knew they had a finance corps? I had a degree in accounting, and they had a finance corps in the U.S. Army. I was a scholarship recipient, and I was commissioned in the U.S. Army Finance Corps. There was only 700 officers at that time, and I had the most wonderful assignments. My first assignment, I was sent to Belgium to report to the NATO headquarters organization that was up there. I spent three years as a 22-year-old kid living in the countryside of Belgium and getting to know some of the most fantastic people in the world. When I came back, you know, of course, you know, you, you get fairly well connected being with a bunch of NATO officers. And I came back to the U.S. and went to my officer advanced course in Indianapolis. And they told me I was going to go to Fort Polk, Louisiana. And I called one of my friends in D.C. And they said, don't worry, uh, you're coming to D.C. So I ended up working for U.S. Army Intelligence in D.C. as a finance officer. And I spent five years doing that. And I like the military. I found it to be an incredibly rewarding experience, you know, personally, professionally. I made some really great connections. I'm still very connected to some people I served with. But there was a strategy element to it that I really gravitated towards. And I've always been fascinated with tactic and strategy. And I ended up working for Lucent Technologies. I worked in their services organization. I led a team of 400 technicians in the Boston area back when you had to actually go out and fix stuff that broke in offices. You couldn't do it remotely. And then I got into sales operations. It really wasn't a thing back in 2001. They called me the chief operating officer of the sales region. And I was responsible for sales strategy, for sales planning, for sales forecasting, for budgeting. And just, I've been there ever since. And I like being the second person in. I love supporting a sales executive. I love being the operations person for them, helping them strategize on how to improve performance and I did that for a long period of time, many different companies, including Akamai, which was a highlight of my career. And then I had an opportunity to go work for Serious Decisions, which was a small company, but we looked huge. We were everywhere. It was like being a, a practitioner and then having an opportunity to go back and being a college professor and everything that I had done up to that point. I get to study my profession, write about my profession, benchmark companies, assist companies in improving their own performance, and then getting to know every single company and executive in the technology space that supports that. That's how I ended up here. I think the military combination with strategy and being that second person in and just thinking about sales as a military organization where you're trying to figure out where to deploy your resources globally most efficiently to maximize the return on the investment that you make. And it's a hard job. It's hard decisions that get made. But I love the people aspect of it. I like working with salespeople. I like supporting them in what they do. And now I work for Anaplan. 
I went from the military to coaching people on what to do. And now I get to work for a company that provides solutions that help companies be much more effective in sales. And I focus a lot on sales planning, sales compensation management, sales compensation design. I'm somewhat of an expert in compensation. So Dan, just a quick question on that, if we can double down on it. So when you say sales strategy, sales planning, you mentioned sales compensation. What does that all entail, right? Because I think folks, you know, all, and when you say it, I think different individuals have a different picture in their mind of what that means. Like what areas of the business you cover? Is it everything from the sales methodology and stages that you're using in Salesforce? Is it the methodology they're using out in the how they're connecting, communicating to folks? Is it more numbers? Is it, hey, look, let me just give you some numbers on how we're performing and how individuals and teams are based on certain stats or metrics or all the above? Great question, Carlos. It began in the early 2000s as a numbers game because the numbers aspect of sales used to be run by finance. And I think as the evolution and the emergence of this chief sales officer became more forefronting in companies, they felt as though the chief sales officer was disadvantaged having their operations resource managed in the finance organization because finance had a tendency to take more of an expense view of things, cost cutting and minimizing the investment that they needed to make. But sales is an investment game and you have to place bets on where you think it's going to pay off. So they started hiring their own team of MBAs like me and called us sales operations. So we balanced the scales between finance and sales, between the expense management and the investment and It became a more symbiotic relationship. And then initially, you were responsible for forecasting because the quickest way for a CSO to lose their job is to miss a forecast. And so you needed to get your hands around forecasting, and then you needed to get your hands around analytics. So not just what's the forecast going to be, but what's our probability of making it and what bets can we make to try to change those outcomes? So if we start talking about sales strategy, how do we stratify our accounts? Are we going to go with named accounts, strategic accounts? Are we going to have vertical accounts? That's a strategic element of it. And then, you know, what types of resources are we going to deploy against each of these different account segments that we use? So we'll have global account managers, enterprise account managers. Where will we use inside sales? Where will we use SDRs? What's most cost effective and what's going to get us the best result? So forecasting and then analytics and then compensation. I don't know of a company that's really totally satisfied with their compensation plan ever. It it usually gets to be too sophisticated, too complicated for sales reps to understand. It's a constant battle to try to simplify it. But there are methodologies that you can use to ensure that it's motivational, it's rewarding, it, it inspires the right behavior. That was the original 10 years, Carlos and Lisa. And then it started to become about sales methodology And more of the sales enablement side, I'll say like, you know, ensuring that the reps are prepared, that they have the assets that they require, that they've been onboarded properly, that they're receiving the same level of support. If you think about operations and enablement and being a partnership in sales productivity, that's where it's evolved. And the operations side is ensuring that the efficiencies are there to help salespeople show up in as many opportunities as they possibly can. And then the enablement side is the effectiveness side. And it's ensuring that when they do show up, they're properly empowered, they're knowledgeable, they've got the tools and the instruments that they need to have a really wonderful conversation. So they bisect. It's operations and it's efficiency and effectiveness that meet in the middle for, for productivity. So Dean, I got a question for you. So no one's listening, but I'll, I'll share with you. I also got an accounting degree. That's how I started out. It's a long story of how I got there, but I got there. And then, uh, you know, were, were you ever a CPA? I was a staff accountant my first year. I was, you know, getting ready to do my CPA thing. And I came to this realization that I'm a creative guy 
Creative accounting usually equals fraud. So I got into accounting software. <laughs> well, that's great. Yeah, you never know where it's going to take you. So in this role of sales operations, right, this whole thing about leading and lagging indicators, right? So some lagging indicators, you know, our revenue per rep or average deal set, stuff like that, right? Our leading indicators are, but they get into a little bit about more about behaviors, right? Are we doing a mutual success plan with our accounts? Because that leads to a higher close rate. You know, are we doing these sorts of activities ahead of the game because it leads to a better closing rate? How do you deal with both sides of that? You have to deal with both sides of it to really assess true sales performance management. I think it's been a rough couple of years for sales. There's been a lot of reductions in sales organizations, and those reductions are often made just looking at quota attainment and what the person has produced in the last 12 months. And it's a really poor indication of success because you've got individuals who've been in these careers for a very long period of time, especially if you start looking at enterprise and strategic accounts, those accounts pop all the time. You know, So you might've done well two years ago, you're running a cycle that's a little bit slower now, and then it comes back. So if you're making assessments on sales performance, just based upon those lagging indicators that you mentioned, you're making a mistake. And then you should look at those more holistically too. You should look over a period of time and not just over the last quarter in the last year. For the leading indicators, are you building enough pipeline? Are you building pipeline in the right set of accounts? You have the right amount of pipeline velocity. Are you engaged in the right activities with the right individuals? And now we were uniquely empowered to measure that with a high degree of accuracy, much like I use my Garmin watch to help me understand if I'm doing the right things and if that's leading to success. We've got a lot of different forecasting and sales intelligence tools that will help salespeople understand whether or not the activities they're engaged in are productive whether they're speaking to the right people and whether those conversations are netting the right results. And when they're not, guiding them towards actions that are going to improve their performance in the future. Now that's, you know, you asked me to talk a little bit about some personal philosophy too. That's the nirvana of the sales tech that could potentially be delivered with these exceptional revenue intelligence tools. What happens occasionally is that tyrannical CROs will use these sales intelligence tools as an instrument to demotivate and micromanage reps. And I think we're running into an era of sales fascism with some of these tools. When these incredible tools get in the hands of the wrong individuals, they're used as a punishment instead of a guide and a coach. And I think that's where we're at a risky point in sales now where the technology has gotten to be so good discrediting the individual in their own intuition and the passion and the art that they have for sales. That's really interesting because there's always been that like intangible piece of, we can call it charisma, we can call it confidence, we can call it intuition. Like there's always been that thing that makes really good salespeople good. And part of it, you know, like now, especially with the rise of tools and machine learning and AI and everything else, it's becoming a question of like the humanity of sales. And so I'm wondering, Dana, like with your measuring, obviously, are you also taking that step forward into coaching or do you have a colleague that you work with that does more of the day-to-day coaching or is it a combination of both? Well, in the organizations that I support now, you remember I'm the person that helps to put this infrastructure in place and then the sales managers and the executives are the ones that actually use it. And I do see some incredibly effective executives and sales managers who are using this for coaching. So the beauty of the technology is that it provides the information to you at the point that you need it The intelligence that's being provided to you is without question accurate in most cases. So you save all that time that you used to spend debating the accuracy of the numbers and you're looking at reality. And now you can have a conversation about the strategy of trying to close this deal 
about trying to penetrate this account, about trying to increase the, the breadth and the width of our presence inside of this account. So yes, when used correctly, it's a great conversation for, for coaching. Yeah, you talk about the power of the human spirit too, right? So I've got a neighbor, you know, she was, her father was unfortunately contracted pancreatic cancer. It was heartbreaking. So yeah, they gave him three months left to go. And that's what the doctors told him. That's what all the stats told him. And, you know, his future was predicted just based upon the numbers, much like you would predict the future of a sales deal based upon all the numbers that were, were presented to you. But what the numbers didn't represent is that she was going to have her first child. That event was six months out and Scotty decided he wasn't going to die in three months. He was going to stick it out for six months. He, they called it a miracle because he, somehow he found that human passion inside of him to hold on long enough so he could see the birth of his first grandchild. And he did it. It became about him seeing the first birthday. This guy lived two years longer than what the doctors had predicted and given these dire circumstances. So for those individuals that are using these tools today and you're getting dire predictions, but your gut is telling you something else, you follow your gut in these cases because that's why you're a salesperson. You're the one that can read the situation. You can read the individuals and you're the one with the passion. I think that we need to be careful about not allowing all these tools and all these technologies to kill the passion that we have inside of us. And Scotty was a perfect example of that because he had a will to live, a will to win, really. That's a great story. I want to go deeper into this rev tech, this technology, these tools. You know, I look at sometimes organizations and they go, hey, here are the rev tech or the sales tools we're using. And it looks like a NASCAR slide, right? It's got logos going all over the place. I go, there is no way that individual reps and sales leaders are mastering all those tools. So when you think about rev tech, what key tools would you recommend or do you use and then we can go a little bit deeper about it because I think this, the other side of this coin is this human to human connection. I'll circle back to that later on at the end. Well, think about that NASCAR slide for a second and all these individual point solutions that are working in this ecosystem, all trying to solve individual problems. And many of the problems are overlapping with one another. We know that revenue operations is the fastest growing job title on the LinkedIn profile. They produced an article maybe five or six months ago that said, there's no faster occupation today. Revenue operations is the evolution of sales operations, marketing operations, customer success operations into a single operations entity that now eliminates the silos between sales, marketing, customer success, and draws on information from HR, from finance, from product, from all the organizations that have a vested interest in the success of sales. So the stovepipes are now gone. The barriers between these organizations are gone, but we've got these individual point solutions that are still trying to solve these problems independently of one another. And when, when I saw Anaplan, and you know, I work for Anaplan, I likened it back to my days in the military when I worked for military intelligence, and they were talking about human intelligence and signal intelligence. And human intelligence was the CIA and signal intelligence was the NSA. And the CIA goes out and interrogates people and the NSA listens in on everything. You're probably listening to this podcast. There was a big debate in the intelligence community back then about who was going to be more important, who was going to win. There was evidence that was released years later. Edward Snowden, you know, he blew the whistle on the thing. The investment in NSA and those types of technologies was way overshadowing those in the human intelligence because it's more efficient you can gather an understanding of what's happening in an organization by observing people's actions rather than asking them what they're doing. Their actions are honest. Their words are often not. There's all this intelligence that's being gathered across sales, marketing, customer success, these data signals, into these individual point solutions that are not talking to one another. 
So they die in their point solution. But with the Interplan, it's a platform that expands across all of these different functions, and it gives you the ability to connect it all into a single place. So I saw our Interplan as being this data signal aggregator that's able to capture information from product, from finance, from sales, from marketing, from customer success, capture it, gather it, analyze it, and send it to the individual who has the most important need at that very moment so that they can understand what's happening. Does that make sense, Carlos? We're overwhelmed with technology. We need to combine it because the operations functions have been combined. So are you using Anaplan, like, for example, for forecasting, or do you go to Salesforce and uh, add a Clary on top of that and do all that side of it? I'm just trying to think about different functions. You use Anaplan for forecasting, or if you want to use Clary for forecasting because you enjoy that experience, you capture those data signals from Clary, you put them inside of Anaplan, and Clary is an opportunity forecasting solution. It's not a revenue forecasting solution. So we take that information from Clary. We can waterfall all these opportunities that are subject are predicted to close in the next six months, and we can project that into a revenue forecast. Oh, we can also combine data signals from the customer success organization on churn and upsell, cross-sell, and add that to that revenue forecast. So you use what you have, you replace it where it makes sense, and you capture it all into a single. Does Anaplan allow you to consolidate some of these tools? Because like you said, there is a lot of overlap, and we've heard it on the podcast. There's also a lot of companies gobbling each other up. There's, getting, there's starting to be some consolidation. It allows you to replace these tools where it makes sense for you to do that. It doesn't force you to do it. So you use what makes the most sense for you. But really, our sweet spot and where we've really started to dominate in the last couple of years is in the area of sales planning. And there's my cat in it. So if you think about sales planning, every company goes through replanning every single year. So just think about the information that you need to go through that exercise. You need bookings information that comes from your CRM. You need revenue information that comes from your ERP. You need headcount information that comes from your headcount management system. All these different disparate systems are containing all this information that's disconnected. So you need to be able to connect it together. If it's not connected, as it is in most companies, they're dumping this information into Excel spreadsheets and then they're analyzing it, and then they're sharing these Excel spreadsheets, and then it's updated as soon as you have it. It it gets sent out to wherever it goes. You need to bring it back, copy and paste it all back into a master sheet. Anaplan will capture all that information inside of the data hub. So that's like building the scaffolding on a construction project. You, You shouldn't have to build that scaffolding every year because planning is a continuous exercise. So you save three months in gathering information just by having it in a data hub. And then, you know, with Anaplan, we've got these flexible models that we can construct where it brings people into the model and they can start to collaborate between sales, marketing, customer success, finance, uh, project. And you start to model what you want to do in terms of deploying your resources. I didn't want to turn this into a commercial for Anaplan, but I'm, I'm passionate about it. So it saves you time. It creates speed, agility, and accuracy because it gathers all the information. It creates these flexible models where you can bring people in and then it stays in place so that you don't have to go and reconstruct these planning models every single year. That makes a lot of sense and seems extremely helpful. Um, so I got to ask you the million dollar question, though. So with all this information and your experience, what are some of the biggest mistakes you're seeing teams make when they fall down these days? Here's a funny stat I got from the Sales Management Association. They went out and they surveyed many different companies on what they think they're good at, and what they think they're not good at. Most companies believe they should be much better at sales planning. They think that they're falling short in that area. But when they're bad at sales planning, inevitably, they rate themselves very good at sales forecasting. So think about that. Like, And you guys have been in sales for quite a long period of time. How many times has the sales organization been given an unrealistic sales plan? Quite often. 
And let's say they they have a realistic sales plan, but then they have to cascade that down to 3,000 sellers and overlays and managers, and they've got three months to do it. How accurate do you think those sales plans are by the time they get down to these individual sellers? And they've had three months to do it. It's not very accurate. Let's just assume that the sales plans, the quotas are unbalanced or unequitable. They're challenging. There hasn't been enough due diligence put into that. What happens at that point? You get into the sales fiscal year, then you start having weekly forecast calls, monthly forecast calls, and then you start having war rooms and you start to overemphasize hitting that number through unnatural acts because the numbers are unnatural themselves. And all that could be avoided if we just did a better job up front of setting plans and ensuring that they were cascaded in a fair and equitable way. And sales reps believe as though the due diligence was put there to help them do it. I think of it as crash dieting. Forecasting is crash dieting and sales planning is a lifestyle change. If you do things the right way, if you put the proper amount of due diligence, if your expectations are realistic and you have the resources you needed, you're going to be much more successful. The Sales Management Association said you're four times more likely to hit your number when you get your sales plan right. And 1.7x more of your reps are going to hit their number. So you have more balanced planning or uh, performance in the organization when you get it right. And if none of that happens, then you try to forecast your way out of it. Right. And then, so I guess one of the things that comes into this too is is culture, like sales culture. And we talk a lot about culture. We've got a conversation actually later today about coaching to different generations and different cultures. Anyway, when you think about, take away the data piece for a second, going back to the humanity piece, typical sales culture has always been hustle, hustle, hustle. In your experience, is that changing? Is that, what do you see happening? What I've seen in the last 12 months, and I'm privileged to have an opportunity to attend lots of different sales conferences. I was at Dreamforce and then CRO conferences with Deloitte and the Sales 3.0 conference, you name it. I have an opportunity to talk to a lot of different CROs, high-powered CROs from huge corporations. And what I've seen happen in the last 12 months is the, the conversation has shifted from efficiency. So like the Clary conversation around more accurate forecasts to effectiveness, because we've gained as much efficiency out of the organizations as we possibly can through these, these revenue intelligence tools, we can analyze the pipeline a million ways till Sunday. But they're still not seeing the increase in productivity that they wanted to see because it's an effectiveness problem. The chassis of the car is fine. We need more output from the engine, and the engine is the, the effectiveness piece of it. It's even worsened by being in a post-COVID world where we've onboarded so many employees into these companies that we've never met. We've got a generation of individuals who may never work in an office. And so they're missing that assimilation of experience that you used to get just by hanging out with your peers and walking into a room and asking them a question. That's not happening. So I think it's one of the greatest challenges of sales for the coming 10 years is how to improve the effectiveness of their sales organization in a hybrid work environment with multiple generations and generations who will never get to assimilate into an office the way that people of my generation did. I think it's a fascinating problem to try to solve. and It's going to require some investment. And you know, in the last couple of days, I've just been thinking, these companies have saved tens of millions and billions of dollars by shutting down offices and they've kept that money. They're going to have to use half that money to invest in the effectiveness of their employees. So they've, they've got real estate and it's killed their cultures and it's killed a lot of their companies. And we're going to have to figure this out. Yeah, it's interesting because this year, compared to the last few, I'm back to traveling more than I, I've had in the last few years. And part of it is people have used what me and Lisa do with our clients as a way of getting teams face-to-face -to -face to, together again. 
to get that human to human interaction, you know, that side conversation at the water cooler. Hey, getting everyone out to dinner. I did this series of boot camps for Hitachi, for example, and we planned, it was fun because not only did I get to speak for one day out of this two day boot camp that we did, but we had planned like a fun adventure event like pro golf, you know, every night at each of these different sites around the globe to get more of this interaction and people talking to each other. And you could just see it like around the bar in Colombia, you know, we're all at the hotel talking about different things and our experiences and our lives. And you miss that. You can't do that over a Zoom call. But I think in this new age, you can create those moments. Like you mentioned, you go, you live in Maine. Let's face it, your whole office isn't there. But you find a way to get to people, to get to events, and build and create these moments. And I think that's the will be a little bit of the balance. Yep, you can work from home part of the time. You can concentrate. You can be there for your family. But the other side of the time, you might be on a plane. You might be at an event. We might be all getting together in an office to really, you know, think about this opportunity, this account that we're working on. And in doing so, it creates that bond. And honestly, if I really think back at my career, I've never been an office guy. You know, once I got into this whole thing, my customers are the ones I need to talk to. I need to be with them. I've never been a big office guy. Now, it doesn't say I didn't have an office and I didn't interact with folks, but it was a balance of those two throughout my career. So it's hard to me ask and say, hey, everybody needs to be back in the office. What everybody needs to be is working together on opportunities, whether it's virtually and in person to build better connections. What are your thoughts on that? Anytime I have an opportunity to get into an office, I do. You know, like if, if they, I never refuse an opportunity to go and work in an office for a couple of weeks. I was talking to my wife about this today. She works for a company where the CEO just says, you all need to be in an office starting next Monday. And that's not going to work. Um, and, you know, because a lot of these people are supporting organizations that are global and they'll never see the people that they support because these people are globally dispersed. But if, look, I don't want to pick on R&D people, but if you're working on R&D, it's probably important for you guys all to be in an office where you can sit down around a whiteboard and have a conversation. But if you're working in a sales support function and your salespeople are in, in California and Maine and Florida, and you're never going to see them, what's the purpose of having you drive to an office and sit on Zoom calls all day? I think we're going to have to get a little bit more intelligent on when and how and who should be in an office and, and, and who should not be. I'm mostly concerned about these people fresh out of college who don't get the opportunity to observe the interactions of individuals who or more senior in their career. Or, you know, to be able to sit, hey, my boss is staying late tonight and his office doors open. I'm going to walk in and have a conversation. That's not happening now. You know, along the same lines, you know, Lisa and I work a lot with XDRs, you know, which is usually a younger generation early on in their sales career. And Dan, I agree with you. It's important for them to have some of that office time and culture building with folks and you're right, like R&D. So it kind of depends on the role. On your example of that sales operations role, like for example, when I became a global VP, one of the first things I did is I did a world tour. And I made an effort. So I remember going to Australia and talking to our APAC team. And I go, hey, when's the last time a VP's been out here? And they go, I don't remember. We're not that important, Carlos. So I made an effort to go to different offices. I agree. I viewed my role as the operations person to stay in the office and answer the questions about the forecast to the CEO so that you, Carlos, could go off to, to APAC 
and not have to worry about what the world was falling apart while you were spending 18 hours on an airplane. Like the questions were still getting answered. The business was still getting run. No decisions were being postponed because you had delegated that to me. That's the relationship that should exist between the operations individual and the, and the sales leader. You know, when I was a worldwide VP of sales and service, I will tell you, if it wasn't for my operations folks, I would be dead in the water. They would have fired me in a week because they're the ones that got me all these all the data that we needed. And yeah, back then it was a lot of spreadsheets. But I remember like one of the things when I took over services, we had this whole list of all our ongoing projects, where we are in according to margin and where we're trending. And I used that data to go back to sales to go, hey, we sold this great deal. It isn't turning out to be what we thought it is. I need you to come back in and deal with this. We can't just jump it on our services folks. And it really tried, it broke down some of these barriers between these different siloed groups. And today, I think we need that more than ever. And hopefully they didn't just give you the information. They gave you some opinions and some recommendations on what they thought you should do, options. And then you made the decision ultimately. They were, without them, I would be dead in the waters of the way I'll put it because they saved my bacon multiple times. And I had a great list between finance, operations, and my team. Whenever I would have a leadership meeting, I'd invite them. They were part of our overall organization. We worked as a unit. It wasn't these siloed events where we looked over the cubicle sort of mentality. It's like, hey, we're all got this main goal. We wanted to be a billion-dollar business unit. We need to work together to make that happen or else we'll never get there. That's the way it's supposed to work between operations and sales. All right. Well, I mean, I feel like we could talk about this all day long, but unfortunately, we've got to give you some time back in your day, Dana. So a couple of questions that we always end our podcast with and ask our guests is, as a revenue executive for a number of years, you've been a prospect for salespeople. So when somebody reaches out to you cold, no introduction, no common connections, what can they do to actually earn your attention and even maybe get a response from you? It's probably easier for me to answer what doesn't work. Somebody will take a moment to notice what's in my LinkedIn profile and sincerely mention something that's relevant to them and try to connect with me on that way. It generally works. And I'll tell you, because I've been in sales for as long as I have been, when an SDR sends me a message that works and it caught my attention, I'm not your buyer and I'm not going to buy anything from you, but your message just worked and you should keep up the good work. I think whenever I see somebody in sales enablement must have told people this at some point in time, but in your LinkedIn profile, if you say that your job is helping somebody, I know you're a salesperson, you're going to pitch me at some point in time. You're not helping anyone. We know you're selling. The other one is when somebody asks me if, if they can partner with me, what point in time did somebody start thinking that selling to somebody was actually partnering with them? When I give you money and you provided services to me, we became partners in this thing. It's when we both contribute money, we're partners. When one person is providing money and the other person is providing a service, you're a customer. So don't try to call me by telling me you want to partner with me. That just, just doesn't work. So hopefully that answers some of the question. No, that's excellent. All right. So Dana, you're an interesting guy. I really appreciate you having on the podcast. Our last big question is we call it Acceleration Insight. What might be that one piece of advice be it business or personal, by the way, that you'd love to share with our audience that they could take away from this podcast? I would say never compromise your principles in this game of sales. And there's many temptations to make that happen. I've seen many people do it on small and large scales. And the payoff is usually immediate when you do that. And I've seen people feel rewarded because they've got that short-term reward. 
But in the end, it, it brings them down. And if you do that as an individual, if you compromise your principle, you'll never be able to live with yourself. Walk away from money to stick to your principles. Love it. That's true. Very true. Awesome. Well, Dana, if any of our listeners wanted to connect with you on some of these topics, what's your preferred method of communication? LinkedIn is the best way to find me. Okay, perfect. And cannot thank you enough for your time today. We know how valuable it is. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Carlos. Appreciate it. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode of the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. Please check us out at www.b2brevexec.com and share this episode with your friends, your colleagues, your kids, your whoever, your dogs. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you can subscribe through YouTube, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please do us a favor and throw us a five-star review on iTunes. I am Lisa Schneer. I am joined by my podcast partner in crime, Carlos Noche. And until next time, we wish you nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.